Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. I am going to be providing some of my thoughts after reflecting on my most recent episode because I feel like the conversations I have with the post-traumatic parents and the members of the post-traumatic parenting community are so educational. And sometimes during the actual conversation, I don't have the time to reflect on everything that was said. So in today's episode, I spoke with Michelle Zagardo, who is a post-traumatic parenting community member and is someone who is in recovery from an eating disorder. And that is one of the central traumas with which she is parenting. Michelle and I had a really interesting conversation, and I think it's important to note for those post-traumatic parents who are in eating disorder recovery, are contemplating eating disorder treatment, or are confused or concerned about their eating, that I do not have particular clinical competence with treating eating disorders. I feel like eating disorder treatment is a form of psychotherapy that should involve a lot of specialized training, a lot of devoted postdoctoral work, a lot of supervision, simply because it is a specialty. It's not one of my specialties. I tend to treat humans. Some of the humans I treat have all sorts of disordered relationships with eating and with food, but I don't treat eating disorders as a primary diagnosis, meaning I haven't gotten that level of supervision and training on it. As Michelle and I were talking, we had some places where Michelle really educated me. I really love what she said about being competent with food as opposed to having healthy attitudes about food, because I think food is about nutrition. Food is about enjoyment. Food is about many things, and it needs to be handled competently. Like any other tool, it needs to be handled well. When we focus on health, especially when we focus on wellness, as Michelle pointed out, there's sometimes a message that can be confusing because that health message can feed right into perfectionism. One area that Michelle and I kind of agreed and disagreed about was the concept of feeding our children candy, how we relate to our children's nutrition. I don't think we disagree, but what I will say is, and perhaps this is because I don't have major hangups about this for the sense that my children tend to eat healthy fruits and vegetables naturally. This is a genetic thing. My husband's family likes fresh fruit and likes fresh vegetables, so they simply enjoy that. I remember someone once praising me as a mom because my daughter liked Brussels sprouts. She was genetically programmed to like Brussels sprouts. Like I offered them to her once when I was making them for myself and she ate them and said, yummy, can I have more? It wasn't any like grand uh, nefarious plan on my part to train her to like Brussels sprouts. There wasn't any um, psychological technique that I used to get her to like Brussels sprouts. She simply likes them. What I will say is I so appreciate Michelle's approach about how we communicate with our children around food 
I think very hard often about Dr. Spock in the 1950s statement that it takes a knowledgeable parent to create a child's eating disorder. And I think what he meant by that, of course, 1950s parenting, thank goodness, is no longer the model. But I think what he meant about that is when you have a parent who is so hyper-focused on one aspect of nutrition, on forcing a kid to get a certain amount of bites down or whatever it is, that parent can inadvertently create all sorts of hangups about food and eating, which I think is very true. What I like to do is to what I call avoiding the twos. I try to offer my children food that is nutrient dense, that is available to them. I am uncomfortable, I think because I've read books like Michael Pollan's books, but I'm uncomfortable with the way the larger industrial food complex in this country manipulates food, making food, especially not nutrient-dense food, very attractive to children, very exciting. I remember when I was a graduate student, I used to attend focus groups in this like testing center, mostly because I had a big lunch break one day and they would pay you. So you would go in and they would like show you dish soap and they would say, what precise shade of yellow would make you think this soap is a better soap than this shade? You know, you would smell samples of like lemon scent to see what's the precise degree of lemony that makes you say, yeah, this is a good dish soap. I would buy this soap. When they do that with candy, when they do that with foods that aren't dense in nutrients, it's going to be hard for a child's taste buds to compete when it comes to an apple versus a fruit roll up. Right. So I want to give my children a fighting chance. I want my children to enjoy the pure sweetness of a drink of water that hydrates our body. But if all they're ever having is soda pop and Gatorade, they're not going to appreciate the delicious taste of water in the same way that if we're watching so many movies, we may never enjoy that process of reading a book. Right. So I want to give my children a fighting chance. For me, balance is key. And what I try to do is mostly provide my kids with a nutrient-rich diet, talk to them about what each nutrient does for us. Like we're having protein. Protein is going to help us build strong muscles. We're having carbohydrates. That's going to give us energy. We're having fats that makes us feel fuller longer. Fats give us healthy hair, skin, and nails. You know, like whatever we're talking about. Oh, I ate a carrot. My eyes are going to get a little stronger from the beta carotene just so that they know that foods are brightly colored for a reason. They have nutrients. It should be attractive to us. And if we give those foods a fighting chance, we might like them. So mostly what I try to do is provide my kids a nutrient-rich diet, and mostly that's what they have. If I sometimes have to have those, you know, fish sticks and frozen French fries dinners, so be it. I don't stress about it too much. It happens. It's not like this emergency. I refuse to let myself get into a post-traumatic parenting perfectionism spiral where, oh my gosh, I fed my kids this processed food. I'm the worst mother in the world not going down that path. We have candy when it makes sense to have candy. We don't have candy as our first eating option. Right. If we're going to be having ice cream, it's a treat. It's exciting. It's fun. Let's all go have ice cream. But we are going to make sure that on the whole, my kids taste buds get that fighting chance to like foods that are rich in nutrients. I agree with Michelle that there are times that that type of message can slide into perfectionism and eating, can slide into orthorexic thinking, can slide into eating disordered thinking. And I appreciate having the perspective of someone in recovery to help inform all of us about 
where are those slippery slopes towards disordered eating that we as parents can avoid? So I so appreciated that. Do I have all the answers on providing my kids with a healthy diet and also, and again, a competent diet, as Michelle would say, a nutritionally dense diet that they were going to like, but also at the same token and also at the same token, not instill any unhealthy attitudes towards food and eating. I myself am in recovery from diet culture. So I am sure that I am, that's something I'm going to have to be mindful of. But for me, the solution that so far has worked is balance, being balanced in that, not beating myself up over the times that dinner is fish sticks and, and frozen French fries, and also not patting myself on the back as the best mother in the world when dinner is roasted Brussels sprouts and salmon, because we have to be competent and balanced in our attitudes about food. I hope you will enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Michelle. As always, I always want to hear your thoughts. I know people have very strong thoughts on eating, nutrition, feeding our kids. So please DM me, message me on Instagram, email me at targetedparenting at gmail.com. I really want to have this conversation so that we can continue to learn from each other as we are parenting our children. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Post Traumatic Parenting Podcast. This week, I am so excited because we are speaking with Michelle Zagardo, who is one of our post traumatic parenting community members. She and I met on Instagram and we just connected because there's so much resonance in what we speak about and what we think about. And I love having her in the community and she volunteered to come on the podcast and I'm super excited about it. You may know her on from Instagram as Food Body Families. You can find her at, at Food Body Families. Same on TikTok. Michelle's an eating disorder survivor, a person with narcolepsy, a post-traumatic parent, and a therapist in training, currently in an MSW program. Her work is focused on understanding the impact that trauma and our early relationships have on the way we interact with food and with our bodies. She hosts the Body Competence Podcast, which is available on Apple and Spotify. Michelle, I am so excited to have you here. I think this is going to be the most interesting conversation. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be talking about these things with you. So I think my first question for you is something I call naming the water. If you know the, you know the cartoon, it was in the New Yorker many years ago where there's these two fish and they're swimming in an aquarium and someone like looks in and goes like, hey, how's the water? And one fish turns to the other and says, what the heck is water? I wonder... At what point in your life did you realize that you were a trauma survivor? I have goosebumps because I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think for me, it was when my daughter, who is not yet two, was about nine months old. And it was, you know, I had been in eating disorder recovery for almost 10 years at that point, And it still it took a long time for me to realize that to be comfortable with calling what had happened in my childhood trauma. Right. I feel like for so many of us, it's like that moment when we named the water and we're like, wait, that was so messed up or that wasn't okay. Or like that was so much bigger than it ever should have been that we start. And for a lot of us that happens when we become parents. 
Yeah. And I think it's important to note that a lot of that might be to keep you safe. There is a lot of adaptation involved in not viewing what you went through as trauma so that you can keep those relationships alive and and relatively well, I guess. You know, I mean, once you start to really realize what you're swimming in and that there are sharks there and there's there's darkness and there's it's such a complex ecosystem, then you have to start moving through the water in a different way. And that is very burdensome. So I think that not naming the water is very adaptive. And then once you get to the point where you can't live in the water without naming it, then you have to shift. I agree with you. I think that, and I think that that's one of those things that sometimes in therapy comes up, like, how could I not have realized how not okay this was? Like, I was, I was so dumb. I fell for that, or I kept falling for it. And it's like, but you hadn't named the water yet. And you're right. I think what you're saying almost echoes what Fairbairn says, one of the early psychoanalytic thinkers, where he talks about how a child internalizes a sense of badness because it's so much less threatening. He uses religious terminology because I think he was a minister before he was a psychoanalyst. But he says something like it's so much less threatening to be a devil in a world of angels than to be an angel in a world of devils right? Um, I'm probably mangling the quote, but that's the concept, right? This idea that, you know, if we internalize the bad, if we don't name the water, then it's not so scary. If it's like, nope, nothing to see here. That's not Jaws circling over there. It's all good. I'm fine. Then it feels safer. If we're like, yeah, no, that's a shark. That's messed up. I'm, I'm little. I shouldn't be swimming with sharks. That's scary. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that when people beat themselves up about that, that's one of the first things I say is like, what purpose has that narrative served you? The same thing when we talk about coping skills or when people say bad habits, you call them bad habits, but have they actually been serving a purpose in your life? What are you getting from these quote bad habits and how are they helping you survive? Well, I am sure that with an eating disorder recovery, which by the way, I'm going to say very um, clearly my limits of competence. I do not treat eating disorders. The reason I don't treat eating disorders is because it's for my own sense of self-care. Because when I was on internship and I did work with some people with eating disorders, some of them were very physically fragile. And I was holding on Mm -hmm. to that fear that something would go wrong, especially in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to come back to the unit on Monday and she won't be here. And as a mom, as a post-traumatic parent, as a psychologist, that level of fear, because when you care about someone, therapy is a relationship that's scary, that level of Mm -hmm. fear wasn't a level of fear that I felt comfortable doing in private practice. So I very Mm -hmm. mindfully didn't specialize in eating disorders. So it's not something that I have tons of training. And obviously, when you treat teens, when you treat humans, you're going to treat a certain amount of disordered eating. But because humans have very interesting relationships with food always, (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think have some sort of food related, you know, messed up relationships somewhere. But I don't have a ton of competence with eating disorders other than, you know, what any therapist would know. But I imagine that with eating disorders, especially those parts, you know, thinking in IFS language, but that that entire network within you was about protection. Yes. So there are two things that I want to come back to in what you just said. The first is that the percentage of people with eating disorders who are going to get hospitalized is so small relative 
to the entire population who has eating disorders. And this has historically been something that has left an enormous amount of the population unserved, specifically black and brown people. Men are not getting served. Anyone in a in a fat body is not getting served mm-hmm. because we think that in order to have an eating disorder, you have to be deathly ill. You have to be in a hospital. So that was the first thing that I wanted to say. So I, I totally appreciate what you're saying about that limited competence and also just want to remind people that you do not have to be in a hospital in order to have an eating disorder. Yes. And then the other thing that I love that you said that so many of us have a strange or weird relationship with food is that as kids, it's one of the only things that we can control. Yes. In our environment. And so when and so many of us in the post-traumatic parenting world are trying to parent in a way where our kids just have more autonomy in general, but people coming, you know, a lot of Gen Z, millennial, elder, millennial, Gen X, people are coming from a world where we didn't have that control growing yes. up. And so the only thing we could control was what went into our mouths. Right. And I just want to acknowledge what you said. Of course, most people with eating disorders aren't in the hospital. It's more Mm -hmm. for me when I was in training that the people who I worked with with eating disorders were pretty severe, obviously, if they were in if they were in the hospital. When it comes to being a therapist and a parent, we have to be very mindful of the level of risk we can tolerate. And some of that is emotional. Right. So some mm-hmm. of that is going to be like any other trauma. Like when I I had a specific kid I was working with in the hospital that was just growing frailer and frailer. So working oh. with her under supervision with so many um, with so many supports and a psychiatric team and a, you know, a whole team working. I wasn't carrying the load of this like fear. Like, you know, do, do we admit her? Do we not admit her? Will she be here on Monday? Because I wasn't carrying that. Right. I was able to focus only on that relationship, but I realized my own limitations that in psychotherapy, because maybe that's my, that was like sort of my introduction to like depth work with somebody with an eating disorder, because it was like a year long Mm -hmm. psychotherapy that because that was a frightening experience for me as, but I had fabulous supervision and I knew in private practice, I wouldn't have that, wouldn't have access Mm -hmm. to that. I've mindfully made that choice doesn't mean that everybody with an eating disorder is fragile. And that's another reason why I'm not going to treat eating disorders, because until I work through mm-hmm. some of that trauma from working with that with that young woman, I wouldn't be the holder of the hope in the way I should be as a therapist, because I would be doubting myself. And I would be I would be having perhaps more concern and fragilizing someone who doesn't need to be fragilized, right? So for me, that's the, and I think that's the way all of us need to make decisions when it comes to, because many people in the post-traumatic parenting community are in the process of their own mental health field-related training. That is the way we make that decision. I have full hope for trauma. I can see the end of the road and I can see what a post-traumatic parent who's been doing that work can look like. I can see what their families can look like. So I'll never fragilize. No matter what the story was, no matter what the trauma was, I will never fall into the, oh yeah, you can't do this. You'll never be able to parent because yeah, your parents were totally dysfunctional. I'll I'll never fall into that because it's like, you can do this. Of course you can. Right? Yeah. So I'm going to totally own that that's on me, that that's not a competence that I developed. And I think if you're ever in therapy, where this is a side note to what we're talking about, but if anybody's ever in therapy with someone who fragilizes them in some way and who can't quite conceive of the health and the other side of it, get out of therapy with Mm. that person. 
That was so powerful. Just hearing the way that you take care of yourself as a therapist, both like your emotional health, your intellectual health, your family, all at the same time. And then also bring it around to anyone who's listening. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean when you say fragilize? So I think there is a big difference between validating and reifying, right? So mm. when we validate someone, when someone says, oh my gosh, I just named the water. My childhood was so awful. It so wasn't okay. I can't believe my parents treated me this way. I was just a child, right? And they're whatever. We want to validate that, right? And, and of course, we want to sit there with that and hold that with them and help them contain that and be present with it and help them process it and help them feel seen and heard in that, right? And that's validation. And of course, if you like take a DBT course, there's all sorts of levels of validations and ways to do validation. And that's important. But then there's like reification. To me, what reification is, is when somebody's like looking at a mountain they have to climb or thinking of like that water, they named the water and now they see how far they are from shore. And they're like, I can't swim there. Can't get there. Can't happen. Mm -hmm. Reification would be like, yeah, you know what? You're right. You can't. Right. Like it's yeah. too hard. That's what I mean by fragilizing. I had an early therapist who fragilized me and who basically told me, you're right. You can't handle this. Like, you're right. This is too much for you. And that therapist was wrong, right? That, mm -hmm. was, that was not validation, right? Yeah. So saying to someone, this is so hard. You're right. Your childhood was so unfair. And there's a part of you that's still mourning that. And you have an inner child who's never treated properly and you don't have a roadmap and all of those things. And I hear that. I resonate with it. I see it. And then they're like, and I'll never do it. Forget it. I should just die now. Or, or my husband should give my mm -hmm. kids up for adoption. I'm the worst possible parent in whatever way they're saying that for me to, to be able to say, it's going to be really hard. And I have complete faith that you can do it. I have seen mm -hmm. others do it. And I know you and I know your strengths and I know what you are capable of. And the person I know can totally do this. That's yes. I know exactly what you mean. And that's how right. I feel with people around food and bodies. I love working with parents or people who are who are thinking about trying to become parents and who look at their relationship with food and body and think how on earth am i going to climb this mountain and i am the i want to be the person that climbs the mountain with that person like i know you're going to get to the top of this mountain because you're you've started to ask these questions and the reason that i think that food and bodies is so important is because it's about control it's how we relate to people you know it's not just this vain I care what I look like. It's like every single thing we do from the moment we wake up, how we dress ourselves, how we talk to people, how we hold ourselves, how we, how competent we feel at like packing a lunch and then eating that lunch in front of another person. Every single, how, how competent we feel at, at then going home to the, to like our home of origin. And I think that's where the family's part of this comes in is looking back at those early relationships and thinking like, what did somebody say to you when you went back for a second serving of ice cream? And how did that suddenly become a message to you that you don't deserve what you want, that you don't deserve to listen to the part of you that wants more, not just of ice cream, but of anything. So I think that food and bodies are really this arena where everything can play out. Yes. I think it's true because 
like you said, eating is one of the things kids can control, one of the only things kids can control. Eating is also the messages society gives us about food, about eating, about thinness, about weight, about looks, about the self-discipline and hustle culture, right? Like all of that mm -hmm. stuff, it all plays in, even in the spaces that should be safe, right? Like the self-care space should be safe. It should be like, oh, self-care. How fast does like diet culture just creep right into that? Oh my God. It's like just a mold that's just permeating the surface of everything. And I think that it's, I, I'm really wary of the word health. Like anytime I see the word health, on somebody's Instagram account, on somebody's TikTok, I'm like, red flag, red flag, red flag. Like, where, how are you using this? Is this health as in like mind body connection? Or is this health in like, I want you to look a certain, okay, let me back up. When I see the word health, I think of performance. I think that in our society, health has become a performance. Like, I want my kid to eat certain things in certain spaces so that I look like a good parent. She eats ice cream at home, but she eats apples when we go on a walk so that I look like the parent who feeds my kids apples. Yes. It's performative you see, health. You know what I'm, it's, it's the same thing with parenting. performative. Yes. Parenting's yes. the same way, right? Performative parenting becomes its own pressure. Of course, if you think about it, the number one thing a parent is trying to do is nurture their child. So of course it immediately intersects like almost mm -hmm. from the minute they're, from the minute they're born, right? Nursing, not nursing, bottle feeding on demand, not on, right? Like the minute you're, you become, especially a mother is the minute mm -hmm. your pressure to nurture is judged. Yes. And your connection to this human's body is What's the word that I'm looking for? You're intertwined. I mean, you're intertwined is if you give birth to your child. And, and I think this is also true for parents who adopt for parents, like across yeah. all of our journeys, we view the quality of parenting when we, by looking at a child's body. And I think that, again, this is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown parents, but it impacts all of us. It impacts yes. all of us. And so at every pediatrician visit, you know, there are like how many pediatrician visits in like the first three months where it's, you know, what does the growth curve look like? And parents are stressing about this. And so we also, as parents have to leave our bodies to become like students of the data that these doctors are giving us. And so we kind of lose any intuition that we might have had. And I love science. I love Western medicine. But I think that from a very early age, we are taught to be outside of our body. Yes. We are taught to not trust our body. And that comes from our feel. It comes from our parents not trusting us. Yes. I think for me, I feel like what got me very disconnected from my body were two things. I um, mean, I will tell you that there were times in my life that I was more subscribed to like diet culture and I was more into like, you know, all of that kind of stuff, just because I think if you grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, like, you know, it was all about like the Jane Fonda workout video and, you know, Weight Watchers, uh, you know, thin bread slices and whatever. Absolutely. You know? And I think it's important to know that like that continues today. It's just what's what's more insidious about it is that it's not always called diet. It's called right. wellness. Like Gen right. Z 
is growing up with like wellness and we grew up with diets. Yeah, we all did it. So you were saying. And so for me, so there was a little bit of that. I was a little bit of one of those like, you know, pudgier kids and people, you know, had a lot to say about it. Not too many people, but enough people that I internalized some of that. And then as a, once I experienced my real PTSD, my body became such a source of uncomfortable sensations and emotions that my relationship to it, it's like I, I told my body, I don't like you. I don't want, I don't want you. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to think about you, which what I ended up doing was sort of ping ponging between extreme diet culture, extreme, nope, I don't care. I can do what I want which also was, of course, completely unhealthy. So now I'm in my like decade of like befriending my body again. Just recently, I was talking to a mom and we were talk- she was talking about how she had felt really dizzy and her doctor pointed out that she's dehydrated and she doesn't drink enough. And her doctor asked her to track how much she drinks and it turns out she drinks really little during the day. So I said, well, and she's like, I should really drink more. I should really drink more. I was like, well, okay, why don't you drink more? Like, can you tell me about the logic? She's like, well, I don't want to have to use the bathroom. And this was a mom I was just meeting and I was thinking, okay, tell me your trauma history. Because like mm-hmm. humans, after they drink, use the bathroom. That's completely normal. Mm-hmm. This thing of like, I'm not going to listen to what my body is telling me because then my body's going to tell me yet more mm-hmm. makes me have, makes my antenna start to really perk up about where's the trauma here. Yeah. It's something so insidious as that, right? Like if you're thirsty, that's your cue to drink. Why are you not drinking yeah. then, right? And again, I'm saying that in a much more like argumentative tone than I would use in therapy because there's a part yeah, of me that's totally. like feeling like angry at wherever those messages came from in her. But like, why not? Why not drink then? You're thirsty. I said to her, do you feel thirst? Because there are people who don't feel thirst. And this was like a side issue. This was something she was talking about getting very dizzy when she's with her kids and managing that. And, you know, and, she, and then she sort of threw it as a side. My doctor says I don't drink enough. That's why I get dizzy all the time. We're like, okay, so do you ever feel thirsty? Yeah, I'm thirsty all the time. Okay, so that's your cue to drink, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'll need the bathroom. Okay. And if you need the bathroom, right? Like, and that's going to be, of course, a conversation at some point. But this idea that we divorce ourselves from the signal our body gives us because of trauma is huge. Yes. So can I ask you a personal question? Sure. So you said your PTSD, was this related to your dad dying? Yeah. That's when I okay. really developed PTSD. When I did CPR, my house was traumatic before that just because of having a very ill person in the home. But when my father had his heart attack in front of me and I did CPR, that's when I actually developed like full-blown PTSD. That must have been so hard. And then you said after that, your body sort of became a lightning rod for comments or how how did that go? No, after that, I decided that I didn't like my body anymore, not in a like physical look kind of way, but in a, I don't want this thing to talk to me. So I would do a lot of those things, like not eat because then I'll feel hungry. Mm -hmm. And when you don't eat for a while, you don't feel hungry. So if I don't eat, then I won't feel hungry. But then when I, in the evening, when I eat, I'll just keep eating because now is time for eating. So I can't feel hungry during the day. Why? I mean, there was a canteen in school. I could feel hungry. I can't drink Mm -hmm. because if I drink, I'll need the bathroom. I don't want to need the bathroom. Right. So like, it was just like, I don't want my body to talk to me. I don't want it to tell me anything. Do you think there's any part of that that's related to the fact that you were trying to breathe life back into your dad and you couldn't? Possibly. 
like your body was supposed to be this instrument. I mean, obviously we know that it, that's not its job, but in that moment it was right. 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 Yeah. I feel like I felt like my body had let me down in many ways. And then the PTSD didn't help because it was sending so many signals. Whenever I would hear a triggering sound or smell a triggering smell, I would have all those signals. So I was really trying to dissociate myself from my body, like not to feel it at all. Right. Your body wasn't a safe place. And I think that's something that with PTSD, so many of us experience, right? Like our body is not a safe place anymore after whatever the, especially if it's like an acute trauma, but even if it's like more complex trauma, our body is misfiring. And so it becomes a war zone that we can't escape. And so it seems like it, as you're describing this, it makes so much sense that you would just try to eliminate as many signals as you have control over. Yeah, I just didn't want it. I just, I didn't want, like, for me, it was like, I don't want this thing to talk to me. It's interesting because yeah. the first time I read about cutting and self-harm, I remember thinking how that was the exact opposite logic for what I did. Like, you know, people who are cutting specifically to, I'm in a really bad emotional place right now, so I'm going to focus my attention on this pain and it will take me out of the sensation. I was doing the opposite. Like, I would have never done that because I didn't want to feel my body. I can How- really relate to that. Can you tell your eating disorder story? Are you comfortable doing that? Yeah, I can tell. It's really complicated. And it's something that I'm honestly still trying to make sense of in my head because it is completely intertwined with narcolepsy. I mean, one of my earliest memories is like sneaking downstairs to eat cream cheese. There were a lot of food rules in my house growing up. And I remember being hungrier than... I remember my hunger making people uncomfortable. I remember the speed at which I ate making people uncomfortable. And I remember my body making people uncomfortable. Um, I talked about this a little bit in my first podcast episode about how like, you know, I have a brother who's nine years younger than me and I, I was a really tall kid. So I, I was like five, six in fifth grade. I grew six inches that year. And I was very responsible for my, my little brother. And so people thought he was my son and yeah. And I, yeah, you say, I feel literal, like like literal parentification, right? Yes. And I didn't know I hadn't started my period. I didn't know a lot about sex, but I knew that you had to have sex in order to have a baby. And so I knew that there was something about my body that said sex to people who knew me, to people who didn't know me. And that was really scary for me. And I thought, if I can manipulate my body, if I can become smaller, then maybe people won't see those things. What can I do to be safe? Because there was also like, I was groped by people I knew who were, you know, my parents, like just. Yeah, really, really crappy things happened. And I'm sorry. I'm really sorry that happened to you. Like that was not okay. It wasn't okay. It wasn't until I had my daughter that I realized how not okay that was and how not okay it was that when I went to the adults who were supposed to be responsible for me, they didn't like light something on fire. Yes. Yes. Does that make that's sense? Such, like, that's such an abandonment. Because like, you know what you would do if, if something ever happened like that, like you would go to war, like mama exactly. beer would come out. And to think that like, 
telling someone like this, and you know, this is the kind of story we hear in therapy a lot, right? It's sometimes not mm-hmm. the grouping. It's sometimes the reaction when you tell. Exactly. And I think that's so much of like having talked to a lot of people about their body trauma. It's not always the incident. It's the fallout. It's the loneliness. It's like, I thought that I could come to you and that you were on my team and you were the most important person in my life and you pushed me out onto an island. There is nothing more damning than saying, you know, I was a child and you abandoned me or I was a child and you hurt me. Yeah, I agree. And then I think, you know, part of my trauma is trying to to repair those relationships and not being met with what I would hope that I would be able to do if my daughter came to me in 30 years and said, you really effed this up, you know? I feel like that's the big thing that this generation of parents, as we're talking about breaking cycles and as we're talking about parenting in a more responsive and, you know, generous and authentic fashion, I feel like the big piece of it is we know that we are willing to repair. We know we're willing yeah. to take responsibility because it's not like what you're looking for is let's get into a you know time machine and let's undo that. You're not looking for someone to like walk around wearing a hair shirt or like, you know, whatever, doing some, you know, major penance. You're just looking for, I should have been different. I'm sorry. I see you now. Yes. Yes. I talk about this all the time about like shared realities mm-hmm. and so much of like the continuation of trauma and like the inability to have a relationship with people who did crappy things to you when you were little is about the fact that you don't live in the same reality today. It's not about what happened. Like I can be okay that you didn't have the resources that I have. You know, I can be okay that you were doing your best, but we need to agree today on what happened back then in order to move forward together. Yes. So yeah, so these, these crappy things happened and at the same time, I was really sleepy. I couldn't get out of bed. I was diagnosed really early with ADHD, like in when I was seven or eight or something. So I was wow. taking stimulants. So I think that it might have been a misdiagnosis for narcolepsy because a lot of kid, little kids with sleep disorders stimulate themselves in order to stay awake. So we have yeah. this idea that narcolepsy, like that I'm going to fall asleep right now as we're talking. but as you know, humans are super adaptive. And so kids will self-stimulate, they'll interrupt in class, they'll get up and walk away, Is there, you know, because it's just, it's not that black and white. It's not as black and white right. as just dropping. They'll do what grownups will do, right? Which is like, you know, when a kid, if I'm in a meeting and I'm like, I'm, I'm zoning out, I'm going to stand up. If I'm, if I'm running a meeting and everyone seems a little zoned out, I'll be like, you know what, guys, let's take a five minute break. Everybody take, you know, shake it off a little, or let's all do jumping jacks, like depending on, you know, how old we are and what we're doing. When kids do that, though, like that's disruptive and that's wrong. Hey, your body's telling you to move right now. Now, sure, you can set up a signal. You could have a corner of the classroom. There are things we can do, right? We can have fidget and place things. I mean, there are options for kids. But this idea that like, you know, must be you have ADHD because you need to jump up in class sometimes. I think, I hope we're growing away from it. I also know a few psychiatrists who actually recommend sleep studies before medicating. Oh, that makes my heart so happy because a lot of the sleep neurologists and pediatric sleep neurologists are like, we should be getting kids into sleep studies before we start doing psychiatric diagnoses. Not that those aren't equally important, but that there are 
when you have an underlying sleep issue, it can cause a lot of other things to be going haywire. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good to hear that. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that like, I think it's really unlikely that I would have gotten diagnosed in any family with narcolepsy because of the awareness about it, you know, 30 years ago. But that did make things really confusing for me with food because I thought that food was supposed to give you energy. And so when I was hungry or when I was getting sleepy, I would eat. And it was like I was trying to throw myself a life raft because if food gives you energy and my energy is dipping, then I should be able to just, I should eat food. So it became really, really complicated. I was an athlete. Um, I played tennis. I played tennis in college. I played squash in college competitively. And so all the time I had this really like binging and restricting, binging and restricting. And my body was praised for its performance. It was praised for the way that it looked. And it wasn't really until graduate school. So I was working on my PhD in economics when this all came to a head because it was the first time that I was not really able to power through something. Like all through college, I was really able to power through with the meds that I had. And I was a third year student. I had gotten through qualifying exams and I was just floundering. I was like sleeping under my desk and doctors had, you know, I had been seeing doctors this whole time trying to figure out what was going on, but there were just some really devastating appointments where it was like, you're a grad student, you are, you know, you're an athlete, you're, and I think it's also important to note out that note that I'm a woman. And right. women aren't taken seriously in doctor's appointments. Right. And most women with chronic illness, I, there's some great TED Talks on this. And I'm just going to throw out some garbage statistics that are not true at all. But, you know, women are disproportionately likely to get diagnosed with depression when they seek right. a diagnosis for chronic illness than they are to actually get diagnosed with a chronic illness. And oh, that I have, was I my have story. My story. I, have, I have that story. When I was Ooh. pregnant with one of my children, went into the doctor and I was exhausted. I felt, and I kept saying, something's wrong, something's wrong. And the doctor kept putting it off to the fact that I was quite overweight at the time and pregnant and commuting to NYU every day. And, you know, mm-hmm. well, what do you expect? You know, you're, you're run down. You know, this is like, you're, you're this pregnancy, you're overweight. You know, he just kept, turned out I had mm-hmm. walking pneumonia and I ended up with a collapsed lung. Oh so, and I'm like not, I would say like I'm a, I can be an assertive person in certain contexts and like, as much as I'm an introvert, I do know how to stand up for myself in many ways. But there's something about being a woman, being an overweight woman in a mm-hmm. doctor's office, like with an OBGYN, that you somehow lose a lot of power and a lot of voice. And I just couldn't advocate for myself. I just and I believed him. He was like, well, what do you expect? You know, he would just like and I would say, so what do I do? He's like, nothing until the baby comes out and then you're going to have to go on a serious diet, you know. And as it turns out, no, I had pneumonia. Oh my God. I'm so glad you brought that up. And you said something that was like very healing to me that just the normalizing of that powerlessness when we get in front of a physician, it's like, and yeah, as a woman and yes, in front of our OBGYN, I experienced the exact same thing. Like I'm supposed to be empowered. This is supposed to be a good experience. And it is like, I just withered and I'm, I'm a patient advocate for crying out loud. Like I'm a, like I'm a public speaker. I've given grand rounds at Yale for, um, in their like pulmonology department and like, what the hell? Like I can't, like I just wither completely wither. And I think also bringing up weight, 
um, is so important because if I was not in the body that I was in, I still wouldn't have a diet. If I was a fat person, then I would be told to lose weight before I would receive any care for a sleep disorder. So it's really important to note the discrepancies and the and the discrimination against people in medical in the medical world based on what a body looks like. Yeah. So I, I wasn't believed I was, you know, it was depression and and I was depressed. I like, wasn't, you know, I was flailing in school. My relationships with my advisors were really starting to get tense because I wasn't yeah. turning things in on time. You know, like things were just not going great. I was definitely depressed, but that was not, that wasn't like the underlying thing that was going on. Well, it was and a normal so, reaction. Anybody yeah. would be depressed if their professors are getting annoyed at them and they're really low energy and the doctor doesn't have an explanation. You're going to get yeah. depressed. That's, you know, you're going to be sad about that. Otherwise, you'd be insane if you wouldn't be sad yeah. about that, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so that is when things really spun out. It might have actually been more in my first year than getting all, to, all the way to my third year because I was sort of in eating disorder treatment in my third year. So it must have been before that. But I started, I was getting these answers of like, you're perfectly fine, you're healthy. And I was like, I am anything but healthy. My sleepiness is so different than these other grad students. And so I thought, if you can't solve this, I can solve it myself with food. And so I went down like the autoimmune paleo route where I just started cutting foods out of my diet until I wasn't sleepy. And it turns out when you have narcolepsy that there is... that you can take all of your foods out of your diet and still be sleepy. So I had gotten down to like eating chicken and broccoli and was just like, I was orthorexic. It was really, really, really bad. I was still sleepy. I was obsessed with food. I couldn't, like, I didn't have a thought in my brain that was not related to food, to meal planning, to all of these things. And I was still falling asleep. It was like a year or two later where I started eating disorder recovery One thing I, and I feel like such a poser in the eating disorder world. I never lost my period. My BMI never dropped into underweight. And so there's part of me, even as I'm saying that there are so many people in the world who don't get hospitalized, who have an eating disorder, there's still this stigma that in order to be considered having an eating disorder, you have to present in a certain way. Well, this is what we say about post-traumatic parenting, right? Where I talk about trauma poker, right? Like no one gets yes. to doubt your experience of your experience. The fact is you had an eating disorder that it, that yeah. you thankfully didn't get to the point where you were needed to be hospitalized. Great. That doesn't mean you didn't have an eating disorder. That's like telling, you know, uh, someone like Edith Ager that, you know, she's not really a Holocaust survivor because after all, she had a successful career later and she wasn't completely broken. Right. Like that that would be the. Oh, man. Gosh, I needed that. Yes. I love your trauma poker analogy. And every time I don't think I've connected it to the eating disorder world. And it so is. It's so there. It's so there. So, yeah, that. Uh, I finally, I got in, I found a therapist and I saw her four days a week. So I was in graduate school. I was in there. I was three days a week in individual therapy, one day a week in group therapy. And it was like secret from everybody except my husband, my now husband, who was just magic throughout the entire thing and was really has continues to be incredibly supportive of my recovery. So that is sort of, you know, and then I was diagnosed or I was diagnosed with narcolepsy about five years later. So it was all, so it's just not linear. 
And it still doesn't totally make sense to me. It sounds like because when our bodies let us down in these ways, it is so confusing. Mm -hmm. And it is so hard. As you know. Yeah. And I will tell you, because orthorexia is something I treat mostly because I see it as more of an offshoot of OCD. And I see it as an eating disorder. Most people that I treat, it started with trying to medically control a condition. Most people that I've seen with orthorexia, it was not about weight at all. Sometimes it was about like training for something, like training for a marathon, mm-hmm. training for a fight, training for like, you know, a, a competitive sporting event, and then getting very hooked into like an elimination diet. And like, you know, then it just, I feel so great when I do this. And like, I'm scared and I have to eat precisely nine you know, I don't know, for Hesley, nine almonds at exactly 2.39 in the afternoon, and it starts mm-hmm. getting, you know, takes on a life of its own. But um, most people that I've met with orthorexia, it did not start from the weight loss body image place. It started from some other concern. That was a great point you brought up about the nine almonds at 2.39 p.m. Because when we're being told by the outside world that our body is, quote, fine, or whatever we're being told, And we don't feel, but when basically anytime that what we're experiencing is not lining up with what is happening outside, like in order to meet the outside world, we have to create like rigidity and structure so that we can present in a way that is safe. Like for me, it meant saying like, I ate the almonds. I only ate nine almonds at 2.39 PM. So now that I'm sleeping, like it can't be my fault because I did the right thing with the food. Did I bring that around in a way that made sense? Makes a lot of sense because what, because there's like this internal shaming voice that's still telling you that this is not narcolepsy. You're just lazy or you're sleeping Mm -hmm. because you're weak willed or something. And so this is, you're like, no, 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 but I ate the nine almonds and I, you know, drank my water at exactly this time and I did this mm-hmm. at exactly that time. So I did it all right, you mm-hmm. know, and then when that doesn't quite feel satisfying, it's like, okay, so I need to do it even righter. So maybe it's like, you know, nine almonds, but at 9.39 a.m., not 2.39 p.m. And then like, you know, it starts getting more. I'll tell you that for me, I have a lot of autoimmune diseases and mm-hmm. this is what I always say, you know, like when people say like, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I'm like, what doesn't kill Ugh. you, it just takes longer. Oh my God. Right. Oh my God. But yes. I actually had this where my therapist sent me to a doctor because my therapist is like, you realize your body is basically doing its level best to kill you and you need to figure this out, which is true. When you have asthma and arthritis, that's what your body's doing, right? It's especially asthma. So I actually do use a lot of nutritional approaches in order to cure it, but not to cure it, at least to support it and to handle it. But mm-hmm. the way I have, because I know how easy it is to slip down the path towards orthorexia, especially for like a person like me who tends to be very task focused, I have like a, I don't know what you want to call it. I have like an accountability friend, not accountability, it's a wrong word. It's like a checks and balances friend was like, tell me if I'm slipping too far down the road to crazy. You know, it's a terrible way to talk, but like, you, but like, am I obsessing too much or am I still like within yeah. the realm of normal? Um, because, you know, when you're dealing with like a holistic health physician and they're giving you a diet plan that's going to like solve all your problems, you know, sometimes that world already is a little, on the one hand, I agree that if we eat healthier, a lot of our ailments would go away and I do feel better eating healthy food, but it's sort of like, mm, like there be dragons at the end, edge of that map. So let's be super careful. So for me, the way I handle that is I have a friend who has a super healthy 
you know, understanding of nutrition and food and body. And she's just like a healthy person. So every so often, and I told her, you are my checks and balances person. So whenever, Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to like discuss this with you. So you could ever tell me if I'm like slipping off the edge because Mm -hmm. I never want to go there. Right. Yeah. It is such a hard balance where on the one hand, I value health. I Mm -hmm. do love eating the kinds of foods that make me feel better. But I never want to go there because I know where there is. And there is a very, very unsafe, unhealthy place. Yes. Yes. And so I think also the way we talk about it and using I when you said like you have this friend who's very healthy or has a healthy relationship with food, I wish I sort of want to start saying like we have a competent or functional relationship with food versus healthy. What do you think about that? I hear where you're coming from. The truth is. What you're saying is something that I think about a lot where food should only be a tool, right? It should simply, it should not have any more meaning than that, right? Meaning like my body needs nutrients, so I'm going to give it nutrients. Sometimes it's yummy. Like sometimes I'm like in the mood of a treat or I'm in the mood of something delicious or I'm in the mood. Okay, great. But it's not bigger than that, right? It's not, it, it shouldn't be this you know, it's like when you say you have a competent relationship with food, to me, that's like, yes, you're relating to food as exactly the thing that it is. It is no more nor less than the thing it is. Do you know what I mean? Like, think about when someone's incompetent to use a tool, right? Then everything becomes a huge deal. If you're using mm-hmm. like, a, if you're yeah. using like a gadget for the first time, like think about like you're learning how to drive a car and you're like muttering like, <laughs> like hand over hand, look in the mirror, you know, like, and you're like, because it becomes a huge deal because you don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. When you're competent with food, then it's like, it's not a bigger deal than it needs to be. And it's not a smaller deal than it needs to be. It simply is what it is. Like I get in my yes. car and I drive. I don't think about, I'm making a left turn or right turn. I know how to do that at this point without thinking too much about it. It's competent. Right. So yeah. I, I like what you're saying. You're right. My friend has a very competent attitude about food. She has a competent right? attitude about feeding her family. Right. Yeah. Like she knows. And I, I want to push back just a little bit. because, And I think you sort of went there, but that food can be enjoyment, but sure. I want it, but I don't want to overthink it. Like I love to eat ice cream. I eat ice cream almost every night. I l- open my freezer and I have like six flavors of ice cream. And I think, which one do I want? I pull it out. I eat the ice cream. And then I put the ice cream away. It's contained to that experience rather than sweating it all night and freaking out about having eaten ice cream or being so deprived that all day I'm thinking about ice cream that I'm eating at night. That to me is competence. It's like, what do I want for dinner? Here are four options that I could make. I'm going to make one of these options. It is contained to this period in time. It's contained in like both the mental and the emotional and physical energy that I'm giving it. And it hasn't bled out into something that's so much bigger. It's like that thing where someone says something like, you know, when you go back to like the old diet culture, like the scale isn't showing me any love. It's a scale. It can't show you love. It's a scale. Your mom can show you love. Your dad can show you love. Your husband can show you love. An inanimate object cannot show you love. The fact that you're putting those two things together tells me that somebody who should have shown you love isn't, right? Or didn't. Right. Or that the scale was tied to love because you had to produce certain numbers in order to get the love that you deserved just for existing as a human. Right. Which is, of course, not really love. Right. And whatever whatever the pale imitation of love is that you got for making the scale happy. 
you know, of course, yeah. scale can't be happy, but it's that same idea. It's this like, yeah. it's, and I think like, that's what you're saying, right? Like, I really like, I appreciate you teaching me that because I really like that reframe, right? Having a competent relationship with food looks at food as a tool. And yes, yeah, sometimes it's a tool for enjoyment, mm-hmm. right? A, a podcast yeah. is a tool for enjoyment. You know, uh, I have a lot of tools for enjoyment in my life. I have a lot of tools that are for, you know, functional utilitarian purposes in my life. Sometimes the same tool is used for both, right? There's a time that I'm listening yeah. to a podcast because I'm getting CE credits for a training. And there's time I'm listening to a podcast because it's really interesting and I'm enjoying that episode, right? It's the same platform. It's, you know, Spotify or Apple or Google Podcasts or whatever that I'm using. Sometimes I use it for fun. Sometimes I use it for the function that it has. And you're right. I, I really know. like what you're saying, right? It's about competence. And you're right that it's yeah. interesting. Now I'm like going to go down such an interesting path because if you think about the whole like the Ericksonian stages and the whole like elementary school years, which is all about the virtue that you create as competence and a lot of the like the food struggles that give us painful memories, right? Because there's food struggles when kids are toddlers and there's power struggles about eating and the nurturing and all that stuff. Let's leave that aside for a second. The food struggles about like, oh, honey, you don't want that extra cookie, or, you know, we don't eat after dinner in this family, right? Those are the food struggles that usually start. That's the age. Most kids, when people, as I'm thinking this through as we're talking, most people who talk to me about their struggles with eating in their family, when eating was part of their mother wound or part of their family of origin trauma in some way, mostly it, that type of thing does not start in adolescence. You have some kids who are bullied for their weight in adolescence. They start developing. People make fun of them. You know, you have that sometimes, but usually the origin is much earlier. Well, think about the language that you just used when you were like sort of rehearsing, like you don't want that cookie. Right. I'm telling you what you want. Right. Or I'm trying to get you to abandon yourself to not want that cookie. How bananas is that? I was copying a specific person in my childhood. I was accessing her voice. Yeah. But I I think that's so common. Yeah. Like I like it's like you hit the nail on the head with that because that is not an isolated incident. You might have experienced that, and so have 90% of kids in America. And probably I don't, I don't, I'm not super tuned in to what that looks like in other places in the world, but oh my gosh, yes. Like part of that is also that we don't want our kids to want the cookie because I I posted about this the other day. It's actually one of the most popular things I've ever posted, which was your parents were afraid of their hunger. There's no way they could handle yours. Yes. And when I tell you that you don't want the cookie, I have control over both of us. Right. Because then my hunger is not as big a problem for me because see, I minimized it in you. I also think sometimes it's threatening when you see a child self-soothing with food, especially a parent who's not very conscious, and they see a child and they know that right now what's happening here is this is self-soothing with food. They feel guilt, right? Because I should be able to teach my child to self-regulate. I should be co-regulating. I should be able, I should be in there as that nurturing parent. I did, I'm doing something wrong so, honey, you don't need that cookie. This is about your weak will, not about the fact that I am not comfortable watching you self-soothe. That's so interesting. Can you say, I'm not really familiar with that, and that's not where I am in my own parenting journey, but 
So is that something that you see a lot in your practice with parents that you're working with where you're, well, I've, I've heard this from parents as we like retrace their childhood, they needed to self-soothe with food because that was the only path of soothing available. And Mm -hmm. their parent felt very threatened by it. And when we discussed why it was because it pointed to their own I don't want to say failings because it's not failings, but it's a systemic small letdowns. And I had this conversation with a mom who is doing that. Her daughter self-soothes in a lot of ways. And the mom is constantly stopping her. Like, you know, don't fidget with that. Don't eat that. Don't play with that. Why are you reading? Why are you reading so much? Like, go out and play. You know, like everything her daughter does to self-soothe. And as we talk about it, she's coming to the place of, why did I raise such a dissociated child? This is a failing of mine, which is a painful thing to come to terms with that, yes, there's something you didn't instill. What your daughter is doing that was separate from that. You need to repair with that. You need to be comfortable with your own methods of self-soothing. You need to be comfortable with the fact, you need to really come to terms with the fact that your daughter didn't develop certain self-regulation. You don't know how to co-regulate with her. That's a separate issue. And you need to really come to terms with that. And now you can teach her to co-regulate, totally separate from whether she does zone out reading for hours, totally separate from whether she's eating an entire plate of chocolate chip cookies or fidgeting with a fidget spinner at the dinner table and it's annoying you and you can't stand seeing it out of the corner of your eye. Separate from that, right? Now we'll deal with the fact that you can't stand it and why this is so intolerable. But Separate from that, from the fact that this is where your daughter goes to self-soothe, is a separate process mm-hmm. of there are other ways to soothe. And in a healthy, and I guess like you're saying, competent, although I'm thinking about it out of food, in this nurturing attachment-based relationship way, now you can start teaching her to co-regulate. Ignore what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Ignore that. We'll get to that, right? Now, mm-hmm. you're right. There's a competence she lacks about co-regulation and self-regulation. Let's teach her that. Yeah, I would also say to that parent, what if you ate some cookies with your daughter? Right, exactly. Exactly. What if you guys did that? One of the things that I think can be so healing is when we eat foods with our kids that we think are decadent without commenting in any way on the food, on our bodies, on their bodies, on the quantity And just letting it be. And just, you know, enjoying the moment. This is a delicious lemon meringue pie. I I really think this lemon meringue pie has that perfect balance of sweetness and lightness. And I love it, right? And I'm enjoying every bite. Yes. And leaving like that experience right there with nothing that comes after. Nothing about how now I need to go to the gym. Now I need to do this. Tomorrow we're going to eat broccoli. Like just that. And I think one of the, I feel like such an advocate for children in the food world. And I also feel like an advocate for our own inner child, because I want people to think back to how they would have had those own experiences. Like think about the experiences that you yearned for with your caregivers around food. How can we give that to our kids? And in giving it to our kids, we're giving it to ourselves. Yes. That's very How true. many of us didn't like never ate dessert with our parent without it being commented on? I actually had that com- conversation with um, my husband, not about that, not about dessert, but about 
he was pointing out that I was, I like to cook my food for the week at the beginning of the week because I'm not like this big lover of cooking. So I like to know like oh, that. Totally. I like to be yeah. done with it, but I like to know that it's mm-hmm. done and I have everything that I want and everything that I like. And he was saying, you know, you're working hard on this recipe that like, that nobody in the family really likes besides <laughs> you. And I said, right, I am worth cooking for. I am oh. worth making my favorite dish for and working hard on it, even if no one else will eat it. Oh, he was pointing out that the the one kid in the family who also likes it isn't going to be home this week. So he was like, you know, she's not around. So like, I'm like, right, I am making it only for myself because I have the right. Oh. And not that he was saying I didn't. And he was, you know, totally supportive of me doing that. But he was just pointing out to me like, you're making it, but you know, she's not home. I'm like, right, I'm making it for me. And because I deserve to be nurtured and I deserve to eat my favorite flavor of asparagus cooked exactly the way I like it because that's what I want to eat this week. Right? Oh, that is beautiful. Yeah. I want my kids to see that. And when we, when our kids get to watch us do that, I mean, what if your kiddo came home and you said to them, I made this thing because it's my favorite. And I know you weren't here, but I thought of you when I, when I made it and when I ate it, because it's my right. favorite thing. And what if you showed them that you were taking care of yourself in that way. Exactly, right? Letting them see that, letting them see that we nurture ourselves and that our bodies are a source of strength. That thing about signals from our body being dangerous, I see it in so, I see it in so many children also. This idea that our body is just this inconvenience that we need to control, that we need to manage and handle. And not that our body is literally where we live. Which to me, that's the saddest thing. I know that this has been a journey for you. How old is your daughter now? She will be two in July. Wow. I'm curious how you feel about shielding her from those messages about the body that's out there in the world, how you deal with people who will make comments. Like, where do you go with that? I don't have control. Mm-hmm. I don't have control. So like for the first nine months, I was like, I have to, things have to be rigid. Think, I was a very rigid thinker. I, I have OCD. I was deal. it was like really flared up. Like the postpartum OCD was, was yeah. debilitating for me. And I do not have control. I do not know if my daughter will develop an eating disorder. What I know is that I know that I have a partner who is 100% on the same page as me, which is really, really lucky. I know that we move our bodies together as a family in ways that are fun. I know that I talk to her neutrally about my own body. When she pokes my belly, I say, swish, swish, jiggle, jiggle. Mm -hmm. I try to keep it really neutral. I, you know, I have jiggly thighs and I try to let her see that. And I try to, I try to let her see me in all of the ways that I exist. That is the best thing that I can do. I let her see me eat ice cream in the middle of the day. And if she says ice cream, ice cream, then she's eating some with me. I try to not have enormously different standards for her than I have for myself. And I think that's one of the things that we do with kids around food. We eat ice cream after our kids go to bed. We eat chips in the middle of the day. And yet we keep our kids on this very rigid diet, like literally a diet, because we think that's how it's supposed to be. 
like if I'm listening to my signals, if I get off of a call and I really want some ice cream, I'm going to the freezer and I'm eating ice cream at noon. Right. And I do that with her. That is the best thing that I can do. The other thing that is enormous is that I call out the water that we're swimming in and it's really uncomfortable. So I started, my husband and I started practicing when our daughter was really little because it's really uncomfortable to point out a fat body, a black body, uh, like all of these words that we were, that we grew up hearing were quote bad, but really are just descriptors of people. We talk about body diversity. We have books that have people of all shapes and sizes and colors and genders and everything. And so we, you know, we just moved, so we don't have a lot of art up on the walls, but I want to get art that has different bodies. I want her. Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't have any answers. I don't have any answers. I think the thing is to continue just improving. And I would also say to anybody who is starting this journey and who has an older kid that at any point you can go to your kid and you can say, Hey, I learned some new information. And I realized that I haven't been eating what I want to, when I want to, and I'm going to try something different. So I'm going to start keeping some ice cream in the freezer. I'm going to start keeping some gummy bears. And I might, you might just see me eating those things. And I wonder, you know, what does your body want at any point in your parenting journey, whether your kid is eight or 25, you can come to them and say this. Right. And that doesn't preclude educating them in a competent way about nutrition, right? The way I like to look at teaching kids about nutrition is talking about like, wow, I ate carrots for my beta carotene today. So like, yay, my eyes are a little bit stronger. Like, you know, just like sort of talking to them about like, what's in a food? Like, aren't we lucky that like, there's all these great foods out there and we can like have all of them and they can do all these great things for us as opposed to coming to the, to that other side of like, you can't have sugar. That's not healthy. You can't, right? Like, because Mm -hmm. that tends to right away put them in that like, restrictive caged mindset of like, this is a healthy food. This is a not healthy food. I'm, I can have it. I can have it. Yeah. And you just look at it as like, you know, I'm so lucky that I had a lot of nutrients today. And like, I can think of my food as a source of nutrition. Kids get really interested. They look at it as a, they look at it as like a science project. They don't mm-hmm. look at it as a, like you're trying to control or restrict what I eat. They look at it as like, oh, that's interesting information. If you don't have emotional hangups about it. And it's just like, this is interesting yeah. information. It's just interesting information. It's information. And I think the same thing goes with what our body is telling us. What you want to eat is also information that your body is giving you. And so how do you honor that information? Right. Exactly. And I think, and I think sometimes, I think, I think the hardest thing sometimes with, I think the little kids is when, because they are little kids, they do, like, you know, if you give a three-year-old one lollipop, she's going to want seven, right? And that... What if you gave them seven? Well, I think there will come a point where you're going to throw up. Like, I think, I think you can, I think little kids can, like, gorge to the point where they're going to, they're going to get sick, you know, and then they're not going to be very happy. And then that's going to be a problem, you know? So for me, it's like, there are times, sure, but there are also times where, I'm just not going to, right. There are times where I'm just not going to go there and I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm just going to like, okay, we're going to have the candy. It's here. I'm not going to turn this into a power struggle. Right. And then there Mm -hmm. are times where I have to say, okay, we're getting close to bedtime. We're getting overstimulated. And then for me, it's like, but does, 
does your stomach want it? Like, does your stomach really want it right now? Because you're looking kind of green, you know, like you're not looking mm-hmm. like you're enjoying this anymore. I've had that a few times where because I, I do have slightly older kids where like there's something around, especially like at a party where like other kids are eating something. I'm like, you don't even look like you're enjoying it right now. Like, are you? That would be a good time okay? to ask them. Yeah, to check in. There are two accounts I love for this. One is Kid Food Explorers, like kid.food.explorers, right. Danny Leibovitz. And the other one is Growing Intuitive Eaters. And they, they're they both nutritionists, like pediatric nutritionists. Right. And I think that they provide really great information on how to do the more nutrition piece of this. Right. Because there's a, there's a lot with it. I happen to be lucky that this hasn't been a huge issue in my family. And I want to mm-hmm. own that because for a lot of people, it is an issue and then parents really shame and blame themselves and feel really bad. Yeah. Just because I think it's a genetic thing. My husband's family loves fresh vegetables. Like they're just like, they're like the kind of people where like a salad precedes every meal. Like they, they wouldn't even understand what it means to not have salad at a meal because they truly like the taste. I do not like the taste of fresh vegetables, so I can't even wrap my mind around this. Mm-hmm. But so for me, my kids have always been those kids who will just eat the vegetables and people will be like, oh my God, how do you get your kids to eat veggies? They honestly like veggies. Like I didn't yeah. do anything. Like this was not any uh, educational thing. This is not a praise on me as a parent. My kids truly, my kids will snack on bagged peppers when they're around. Like, you know, those mini peppers, they'll just snack on them. I I would never, because I don't like the taste, which is fine. I think it's important to recognize in the same way that there's body diversity, there's diversity in what we want to eat. Yeah. Some people want to eat vegetables. Some people want to eat meat. Some, like all of us are getting different signals from our body and all of those signals are okay. And, you know, Within, like, unless there it becomes clinical, but right, you know, if you have the average or whatever, sure. Yes, like the average person's signals from their body are good signals, right? And I feel like when people, you know, shame and blame themselves about like kids who have taste aversions, kids who are picky mm-hmm. and things like that, this is more neurologically wired than you realize. Yeah. When I think of the salads I forced myself to eat in childhood or teenage years. I really, truly dislike the taste of fresh vegetables. Like, yeah, it doesn't what did sound I do like to myself for you? Yeah, yeah, I just don't like it. I like cooked vegetables. I mean, like if mm-hmm. they're like asparagus, but like you know, like I have, I have the things I like. Look, I'm super specific about like the about the like the treats that I like and the foods like the sweets that I like, right? Like, and nobody gets to shame me or blame me or make fun of me. I like stale Twizzlers. Like. I don't like Twizzlers when they're sauce yes. from the package. They have to be hard and brittle and chewy. That's how I like them. I literally oh, I feel the same open way. the package yeah. and, and leave them to dry. And like, yes. you know, I have people in my family who lovingly like make fun of that. Hey, mm-hmm. that's what I yeah. like, people. <laughs> it's just like, if, if you want to know what I like, this is what I like. Buy me Twizzlers, open the package, leave it for two weeks, <laughs> then give it to me. If you want to give me a treat, <laughs> I like, you know. I love it. I really like stale gummy bears. So oh I gosh, really, really? I, yeah. So I, I can't relate to the Twizzlers thing, but yeah, yes. Like we like what we like. I love cereal. I will eat cereal for dinner for a week in a row. Like, yeah. And I think again, the shaming and blaming comes from out here. Right. And so what can we do to connect to what's coming from inside right. of us? Right. Exactly. I feel like, like you're saying, it goes back to competence. It all goes back mm-hmm. to competence. Right. And, and how so few of us learned how to do this. And we were learning how to do it from people who didn't know how to do it. Yes. 
We yes. learned how to eat from people who didn't think they deserved food. We learned how to have a body from people who hated theirs. Yes. So now we're trying to relearn all of that at the exact same time that we're teaching these little humans how to do it. Right. And that's really hard. Like it is as hard as it feels. It is hard. It's hard, but it's so worthwhile, right? Because so worthwhile. I feel yeah. like the more we each thing, it's like a giant knot, right? And like each strand that we loosen in the giant knot makes it easier eventually to unknot the knot. So like for some families and for some people, eating is not the issue and it's not the thing that they've preoccupied themselves with. And they're going to listen to this episode and be like, oh, well, that's not me. But there's strands of it, right? So if you loosen those strands, the rest of the knot loosens, right? And for some people, yeah. it's going to be about the PTSD symptomatology. And for some people, it's going to be about dealing with kids who are really reactive and how that makes them feel. Everyone's going to have the part of the knot, like that strand that they steer at. And that's the thing that like, you know, they think about. But really, each strand that we loosen, loosens the knot and it loosens it just loosens us up to be able to be more fully ourselves. That was perfect. That I, was so beautiful. It's I all really in service of the this. goal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Robin, thank you so much. This was this was magical. This was me. fantastic. I'm gonna email you. I just I know that if I'm not upstairs in four minutes, <laughs> all, all chaos will break loose. <laughs> all right. Okay, do I'll that. Yeah. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? you have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.